five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Penguin Random House Canada. From the record-breaking astronaut and author of Endurance, Commander Scott Kelly, comes a new book. Infinite Wonder is a breathtaking collection of photos documenting Kelly's journey on the International Space Station, the vastness of space, and the unparalleled beauty of our own home planet. It includes snapshots of the astronaut's life and work on the International Space Station, from spacewalks to selfies, hurricanes, wrinkled mountains, New York City shining like a galaxy. It's on sale now. And this episode is also brought to you by the Don't Let Go Canada Coalition. For 60 years, Canada has been a space leader. We help build the International Space Station and land astronauts on the moon. Back on Earth, we leverage our space capabilities every day to push boundaries in medicine, communications, and environmental monitoring. The clear vision and commitment of previous governments helped drive this forward, but now our country faces a decision point and we need to act. Please visit don'tletgocanada.ca and join the campaign to help us keep innovation, jobs, and our best and brightest in Canada. The universe needs more Canada. Don't let go, Canada. My guest today is freelance reporter Elizabeth Howell. Elizabeth is a contributor to Space Q, along with writing for several other publications. She's also a journalism instructor at Carleton University, the University of Ottawa, Algonquin College, and La Cité Collégiale. Elizabeth We'll be heading to Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan next week to cover the launch of Expedition 58 to the International Space Station. On board will be Canadian astronaut David Saint-Jacques, who will be on a six-month mission. That's one of the topics we'll discuss this week. We'll also discuss last week's Canadian Aerospace Summit in Ottawa that featured prominent cabinet ministers, including Transportation Minister Marc Arnault and ICED Minister Navdeep Baines. Also at the summit, and key to what did or didn't transpire, was NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein. Before I welcome Elizabeth, I want to thank you, our listeners. Our audience is continuing to grow, and the feedback we're getting is great. I also want to thank those of you who support us by becoming a patron through Patreon. Your monthly contribution is greatly appreciated. However, it's only a small portion of you that support us through Patreon. The vast majority of our listeners and readers don't. I would humbly say to you that if you like our podcast and daily news coverage on our website, that you consider becoming a patron. It's only through the support of listeners like you that Space Q can afford to hire freelance journalists like Elizabeth and others we work with. And I want Elizabeth and others to be regular contributors. There's a lot of Canadian news out there, and international news, and we would like to cover it. Nobody else is doing it like we are. Our Patreon address is patreon.com slash spaceq. That's space and the letter Q. 
you can support us starting at $2 a month. That's all it takes. Okay, let's get to today's show. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the Space Cube podcast. Welcome. I'm really glad to be here. So, yeah, we've worked together on and off for many years, and this is the first time uh, you've had a chance to get you on the podcast, which is great because it's sort of like two journalists talking about what's going on. Uh, today, we're going to talk about two important topics, topics related to Canada's space program. The first is the ongoing pause button the Liberal government has put on a new space strategy and new programs. Then we'll discuss the upcoming mission by David Saint-Jacques to the International Space Station. So, last week you attended the Canadian Aerospace, Aerospace Summit in Ottawa, which included talks by Transportation Minister Marc Garneau, who is Canada's first astronaut and former president of the Canadian Space Agency, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, and there was also a panel featuring Jim Bridenstine and ICED Minister Navdeep Baines, who was responsible for Canada's space program. There was also an industry panel. But to start, how would you describe the mood at the conference with such high-profile government representatives participating? First of all, there was this feeling of energy because there just was such a dynamic list of speakers to uh, to look forward to because you knew that something interesting was going to happen, but you didn't know if it was going to be, as the old saying goes, a lot of sound and fury signifying you nothing, or if it was going to actually be concrete space policy. And there was this real feeling of expectation among the journalists after Bridenstine came out and said, OK, Canada, we want you to join in to our lunar orbital platform gateway, which is their space station that they're hoping to put out by the moon in the uh, 2020s. And then um, Garneau went on stage and he didn't address it. And Baines went on stage in a kind of interesting panel with Bridenstine. Maybe you and I could talk about that in a bit. And he didn't say anything. And then <laughs> we're all kind of sitting down in the uh the lobby area talking about the panels and we're going, yeah, we're going to actually get some news from uh, the Canadian uh, government today about what they think about this offer because it's kind of a big deal. But then finally, when uh, when Baines came down, we had five or six people asking him questions in about five or six different ways. And he finally said, yes, we will have a space strategy by the uh, the end of our mandate. And no, we haven't decided yet. We will know when we get the space strategy together. All right. So we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But with yeah. respect to... Uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, I mean, he really did a hard sell, uh, not only in his talk, but leading up to his talk when he arrived in Ottawa on social media. I mean, uh, you were there for his talk. Other than the hard sell, was there anything else of interest in there or was this just, come on, Canada, let's go? Well, what he did was he actually was saying how great of a program that the U.S. has, and it really is because of Canadian contributions. And basically, he went into this long recitation of Canadian space history that maybe we don't quite need to repeat here because everybody knows about it. But he basically was saying, yeah, you know, we've collaborated since even before Alouette on some of the uh, the high atmosphere, ionosphere programs. And then we went into Alouette, and then we had... Uh, landing legs on the, uh, the lunar module and so on and so forth into the shuttle program and now the space station program and that's when the hard sell came near the end about well you know since we've been working together for so long and it's been going for so well why don't we keep going and he even said that he's planning to approach all the space station partners and that includes uh, Roscosmos interestingly enough because as you know NASA and Roscosmos had some tensions about four years ago after the uh, invasion of Crimea but uh, he said, no, you know, we've had a really great relationship and we hope that we, uh, we get them on the gateway as well. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, um, all the problems that happen here on Earth uh, somewhat seem to disappear once you get to the space station and into space where collaboration seems to be the rule of the day. Um, now, in the panel discussion, 
with uh, Minister Baines and Jim Bridenstine, one of the things that struck me, other than the fact that, well, it seemed a little awkward uh, in terms of a panel, I I was actually, based on the schedule, expecting just Minister Baines to actually do a speech, but it turned into this panel discussion. But one of the things that came out of it was, uh, right at the end, he made a point of saying that Canada has every intention of continuing our relationship with NASA going forward. Then during the press scrum afterwards, you reported that the minister had said Canada hadn't decided on its participation yet in the NASA's Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway Program. Um, So if Canada is going to continue its relationship with the U.S., as the minister said, did you get the sense that even though Canada hasn't said yes yet, that it will? I would hope so, because that seems to be where the U.S. policy is going right now, although of course, we have to remember what happened with uh, the Bush space policy about 10 years ago and the space exploration initiative with the other Bush back in 89. It's sort of a tough call because uh, NASA is really our closest trading partner. It's the place that we uh, tend to send our astronauts on in terms of uh, access of opportunities to space. Historically speaking, too, NASA was the only way they could do it in the past, but now we have the Europeans, which makes me wonder, is Baines actually speaking with the European Space Agency about possible opportunities over there? And maybe he's thinking about NASA for other directions, such as flying payloads or uh, maybe doing something more industry-focused rather than astronaut-focused. But he just was very vague. He just When we kept pressing him about this stuff, he just kept saying, well, you know what? Space is a complicated field, and we want to make sure that we get it right, and that's why it's taking so long. So it's sort of hard, because as you're pointing out, he's saying one thing, and then he's saying another. It's almost like he's trying to keep all of his options open until the, uh, the last moment. Yeah. Uh, doing more with the Europeans. That would be interesting. Um, hmm. Okay. Now, he also, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I suppose the reporters were pressing him on the space strategy, which is what they do every chance they get when they see him. Uh, and he was pretty vague on that. But, you know, one of the things that an article doesn't convey sometimes is the actual tone and the way he was talking to reporters. So when you said that, uh, you know, uh, yes, they're working uh, towards a new space strategy. And did he actually use the word long-term space plan? Uh, I'm struggling to remember if he used those words exactly, because basically what was going on was the reporters kept asking questions such as, will a Canadian astronaut walk on the moon? And uh, they were asking him in those words about a long-term space strategy. He basically just kept saying it's difficult to come up with, I think it said a strategy, not a plan. But I have to look back at my notes. I don't have those right in front of me right now. So it really leaves us where we have been, which is uh, paused, and um, which is definitely getting a lot of people to scratch their heads. So uh, do you have any color insight as to why the government is continuing with this pause button on the space program? And shall we just mention briefly that it's been going on for quite some time, even before the Liberals were in power? That's <laughs> true. That's true. I was, yeah, yeah, exactly. I wrote all about uh, that, so... Funny, yeah, yep. Um, the, the very day that David Saint-Jacques, who we're going to talk about in a moment, um, was selected, I was on site at the announcement asking the uh, the president of the time, Steve McLean, about the long-term space strategy, and that was in 2009. <laughs> And it was even going on for about a decade before that, that people had questions about when the next strategy was going to come out. So it's a problem. Um, I think that one of the things that people don't realize, and this may include government officials as well, 
is that even though uh, Canada's, Canada's space sector may not look like a lot in terms of dollars and cents on our budget balance sheet, because of the exports, it actually does have quite the impact on our economy. And I don't know if we can if we're conveying that properly. Um, thankfully, the uh, the Don't Let Canada Don't Let Go Canada coalition is uh, is mobilizing, and uh, they have huge advertisements on buses here in Ottawa. They're actually like full wraparounds. I've never seen this before from any space player ever, advertising Canadian space and how great it is. And uh, they're starting to uh, put out series of uh, articles and other uh, sort of initiatives where people are talking about it. Um, Bob Thirsk, a former astronaut, just had a column in the Ottawa Citizen this morning, for example. And uh, for the most part, they seem to be focusing their efforts around educating politicians and uh, officials in Ottawa, because that's where they feel that uh, the centre of power is resting, which also is an interesting choice, because, of course, the Canadian Space Agency is right outside of Montreal. So um, it's a complicated problem. I just feel like the more that I look at it, it's like people don't even realize the importance of the space sector. They just sort of think, oh, you know, we send up astronauts once every six years, and that's about it. But no, it's a lot more than that. I mean, you and I know this. There's something happening in Canadian space every day. It doesn't necessarily have to just include the guys and the, the girls that are flying up in space. You know, it uh, also has to do with uh, the technology, the, uh, the military aspect of it, the sovereignty, the energy. Um, there's a lot of things about space. It's such a big field, I guess it's hard to encompass it. What are your thoughts? Because I know that you write about this industry stuff daily. So how are well, you feeling about it? That I'll, what I'll say is that at this point, it's uh, it's a little bit puzzling as to why things are still on hold uh, for the simple reason that, you know, we've had reports after report after reports, studies, commissions, uh um, you know, the uh, Space Advisory Board did its consultation. If the government should be inundated with in information at this point uh, of every type, including all the statistics as to, you know, the multiples of why, you know, this creates jobs in Canada, uh, how it affects the economy, that information, they have all that. So for whatever reason, uh, they have yet to uh, articulate uh, what... Uh, they plan on doing. Um, I am in the process of trying to get somebody from ICED onto the Space Cube podcast to uh, talk about this. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll succeed, but it's something that's uh, uh, in the works. I mean, we are looking at uh, 2019 uh, springtime budget is the last budget for the Trudeau government, uh, unless they get reelected. We have the election next fall. Uh, but, you know, we're, this is like I've written, this is the, we're into the fourth year of, of the, the little liberal government. And in all honesty, they've done uh, pretty much the same as the previous conservative government, uh, which is, you know, not much. Um, they can claim that they have extended our stay on the space station, uh, but that is not a new program. That's an existing program. Uh, in terms of any new... Which is almost done, let me just point out, because uh, if we're talking 2024, 2025, that's nothing in terms of space technology. We've got to start planning now. And that's the thing. This is the thing that I think that, uh, you know, uh, in doing some research on planning for Canada's space program, and and I did a seven-part series uh, recently called uh, What's in Canada's Long-Term Space Plans, um, you know, when you make a plan, it has to be able to survive governments because the programs have long lead times. The 
project that NASA is moving forward with uh, for a lunar gateway, that program is going to take, uh, you know, a decade or more uh, before, we, you know, everything is realized. Um, it's a long-term project. Well, there needs to be long-term planning with that. The U.S. is moving forward with that diligently. They are expecting Canada to participate. And, you know, that participation is in part uh, because, well, they want to defray some of the costs. And Canada is a place where they can go and say, hey, you want to participate, you know, and, and you'll take on this burden. It's going to be a small percentage of what the overall mission costs are. But the benefit to Canada can be quite substantial uh, in robotics and AI. Medicine in particular uh, is something that Canada is really starting to focus on. Um, uh, because astronauts are going to be spending more time in space. There's going to be more astronauts going in space, at least theoretically. Um, so we need to know more about uh, the, um, the medical side of it. Anyway, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Robert Thirsk a second ago, and you said that there was an article or an opinion piece in the Ottawa Citizen, and I want to quote from it because I found it quite interesting. He said, our national space, gro- space program is surviving but not thriving. He also said the best and brightest are leaving Canada to follow their space dreams elsewhere. We are slowly losing national capacity. So this isn't the first time we've heard a prominent Canadian speak out. And with the Don't Let Go campaign and with what's been going on since the Space Advisory Board submitted its report uh, last uh, June or last, sorry, last August, um, And so that's over a year ago. Do you think the pressure is starting to mount on the government to do something? I really do, because they're almost at the end of their mandate, and they've been promising basically since they came in that they're going to address this. Now, uh, Baines was quick to point out that in the last three budgets, there have been some spendings on uh, space programs, including that extension to the International Space Station. So let's acknowledge that. Let's say that, yes, they have done that. But the thing is, you can't spend money without a strategy. It's just like having a budget for your own house. You know, you can't just go spend things willy-nilly unless you know what kind of things the house needs to have fixed over the years and making sure that you take into account your income fluctuations and all that. It's just it's just a principle of personal budgeting. So they need to have a vision in place as soon as they can, and then we can go and do what Canada does very well, which is go to our international partners and figure out how to trade opportunities because uh, we are very, very good at spending a little bit of money and getting a large return from it. But we can only do that if we know where to spend those limited dollars. If we don't know, then we're just going to be spraying money in every direction and uh, not getting much return, unfortunately. And I have to stress that even though the government comes out and says we have spent money uh, and put money aside for the space program um, these last three years in the three budgets, which is true, they really are very, very small amounts of money when you think in terms of space programs. And... Um, you know, the broadband initiative is a good initiative. Uh, but, you know, they're putting in a very small amount of money, $100 million over five years towards several uh, companies that are going to participate in this. But that project in of itself is a uh, $1 billion plus project that at least in, in we're talking Telesat now and their constellation. And so Telesat and the private sector are putting most of uh, the funding into that project. Um, They put aside money for the Canadian CubeSat project, which is a great thing, but it's, you know, 
$10 million or less than $10 million over many years. Um, and by the way, you know, they missed the boat on CubeSats. It, you know, we should have been doing much more in that area many years ago. Uh, I wrote an article last week about, you know, there are um, several, I don't know, can remember like 13 constellations of satellites that are planned by companies and they're going to put up uh, 384 satellites is what they've planned. But most of those satellites, uh, if not all of them, won't be built in Canada, although some of the components will come from Canada. Um, none of them at this point are going to be launched from Canada. These are, especially on the, the building side of it, I mean, this is a missed opportunity. We could, Canada, we, we invested money in the Space Flight Laboratory in Toronto, which is a great institution that's for 20 years has done innovative work in small satellites. And they do produce small satellites, but they're not set up to mass produce satellites. So we, we missed an opportunity here with that. So the government can take some credit, but in reality... They haven't been, you know, they haven't been doing their role. Okay, um, let's move on from there. We could keep talking on on this for for an hour or so, but let's move oh, on yeah. from there. We're for days. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's talk about David Saint Jacques' mission because this is a positive, really good positive thing. Um, although I have to say that you know, he's the first astronaut to fly in what six years now. Uh, Canadian, right, first Canadian astronaut to fly since um, Chris Hadfield, uh, and yep. the time between flights is is for a Canadian astronaut is getting longer and longer. So that's a negative, but it is a positive. He's actually going on a mission, um, and so let's talk about that now. And let me just set it up a bit because um, everything seemed to be going uh, just wonderful until about a month ago, a little over a month ago, on October 11th, the Russian Soyuz carrying two astronauts to the International uh, Space Station failed to reach orbit. Both astronauts thankfully survived. The Russian uh, escape system worked exactly the way it was supposed to, and neither of them suffered any major injuries. As a matter of fact, they were they walked away from it basically with bruises. Um, many, including myself, expected David Saint Jacques' mission to be postponed until sometime in 2019. An investigation needs to happen, and then return to flight. Then happens after that. Uh, however, the Russians acted very quickly and appeared to have found the problem, which was a deformation of a sensor. Since then, the Russians have launched three similar rockets to, uh, to launch satellites, one to resupply the space station. Now Saint-Jacques mission has been moved up, not, not moved back, moved up three weeks from December 20th to December 3rd. That's pretty remarkable. What are your thoughts on this turn of events? I couldn't believe it because uh, I was watching that thing almost live, you know, like everybody else. I woke up to this news that there was an abort, and um, I'm so used to the NASA way of doing things, which is sometimes, you know, because they want to be extra careful, they take years to uh, to get problems resolved like this. Now, in the scale of problems, this is a minor one, obviously, it was a bent sensor as opposed to some sort of major malfunction. They're also very familiar with the system, having launched Soyuz rockets of some type since the 1960s, if I'm not mistaken. So these are all good things. It means that they all, you know, understand the technology and its uh, its uh, its ability to launch or not. But I just was amazed at how efficient they are. And uh, I'm not as knowledgeable, obviously, about the uh, the Soviet or Russian uh, technology because I haven't actually ever lived there. I've just visited there once or twice. But uh, it really does uh, speak to a different cultural expectation, I suppose, over there. That uh, whenever 
something goes wrong, they kind of just dive into it. And if it looks like looks okay, and they're confident in the technology, they seem like they're okay with going ahead. And they also just mentioned that NASA had to have its own flight review as per the uh, the flight rules to make sure that everything was okay. And uh, they were satisfied with it apparently because they uh, they gave the go ahead. They got Anna Clean, their uh, their own astronaut, going on there. So. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it is that it's able to go so quickly. You would probably have to get some kind of a Russian space program expert to figure it out. But uh, I was just in awe, in a good way, at uh, at how well it went in terms of the investigation. And uh, congratulations to David for going up three weeks earlier instead of six months later, <laughs> which is what we all thought at the time. So, like you said, he's going up three weeks earlier. Uh, what do you think's going through his mind? After all, while the Russians are confident that they ter- determined the problem, and they've had three launches since then, and the Soyuz has a long history, and they know the system inside and out. This is the first human launch since the accident. What, what do you think is going through his mind? Well, uh, every astronaut knows when they climb on top of a rocket that there is a risk, and uh, they're obviously well-educated as to that risk and what might happen and how they can minimize their problems if uh, such a problem is to happen. So we know that all that training is in his head already, and he's just kind of accepting that uh, there's a chance he may not get there or a chance that something disastrous might happen. But at the same time, I'm sure there's also this feeling of, you know, I've been working towards this for nine years, and I really do hope this works out, (laughs) because if I come back down again, who knows when the next chance is going to be, especially in Canada with the the rate of our flights going down and down, you know, year by year. So uh, I'm sure it's probably a little bit of a trepidation. It's the way that every astronaut needs to think when uh, when they do their job. But at the same time, uh, he can't let it distract him, obviously. He needs to be focused on the work, making sure that he's able to uh, support the crew. He also has a very important role in the launch because he's basically the uh, the pilot. So they have uh, the Russian who's always in command of the Soyuz. That's the way that it's done. But then the left-hand seat, the pilot seat, was given to David. And uh, I believe it's in part because of his long, long training history. He not only had two and a half years training for this mission in particular, but he's been training in one way or another since 2009. So uh, it was a nice acknowledgement on the part of both CSA and NASA to make sure that NASA got, uh, sorry, David rather, got this uh, this post. But it means that he's going to have to be really, really focused when he's sitting at the launch because he's literally one of the two people that is in charge of making sure the spacecraft gets where it's supposed to go. And he's uh, the second Canadian to get that role as um, Chris Hadfield had the same role uh, when he launched uh, in the on his last mission, right? Exactly. It's remarkable because uh, Hatfield had three missions, and this is uh, David's first. So it really does show the respect that uh, the various space agency partners have for his training and his experience. And he's not even a pilot by training. Let's just point that out. You know, originally when he came into the uh, the space program, he was very talented in a lot of fields. He'd done engineering, he'd done astronomy, and of course he was a medical doctor in the North. That's what he's best known for. But then he had to learn how to fly um, in the same sense that other test pilots and uh, fighter pilots have had to learn. It's more Jeremy Hansen that had that background working for the RCAF before he, uh, he joined the uh, astronaut corps. And I would point out that David St. Jacques actually did go out and get his commercial pilot license as well. Um, And Anne McLean, who is the American astronaut that's going up on the mission, if I remember correctly, uh, she is a marine pilot. Yep. So, so yeah, so this is quite uh, quite something, and it it goes to uh, to show uh, David's skill set, which is uh, uh, quite the skill set. I think Canadians. uh, uh, you know, like all our astronauts, uh, but he's extremely skilled. Okay, now, 
because of the uh, failed launch, uh, astronaut NASA astronaut Nick Hague and Russian cosmonaut uh, Alex, Alexei Ovichnin uh, aren't on board the ISS, and they're not part of the ISS crew. So how is that going to uh, affect uh, David's mission? It's really going to have an effect. So one of the things that the Canadian Space Agency was hoping for during his uh, backup launch in June, which I uh, attended in Kazakhstan, we could talk about that later, was they were hoping he would get the chance to do a spacewalk. And now it doesn't look like it's going to be very good because here's the issue. You have people that are on board the station doing work. The station has a certain number of maintenance hours that just have to be performed. If you don't do those maintenance hours and the station stops working and then you're wasting your time, basically. So... If there are fewer crew members on board than the six that they usually have, if they only have three people, as was going to be the case for quite a while, those maintenance hours have to stay the same, which means something has to give, which is the science. So uh, they won't be able to do science experiments. And also because there are fewer people on board, fewer backups, they won't feel as comfortable doing a a spacewalk in EVA unless uh, there's some kind of really pressing reason to do it, such as maybe an emergency or if they have some kind of a very tight schedule in terms of installing something. So um, it looks like his chances for doing Canadian work and also doing Canadian spacewalks uh, just might not happen as much as he had hoped for in the beginning. But he has to make the best of what he's got. I mean, he's going to be up there. He will still have a chance to distinguish himself in other ways, of course. But uh, I'm sure it's a little bit frustrating for all the uh, science investigators as well as those that are working on uh, external stuff, the spacewalks, to be uh, figuring out what to do right now. Now, because he's leaving three weeks earlier... Is he coming back three weeks earlier, or is his mission actually going to be a little bit longer? His mission is going to be six and a half months, which is going to be the longest time that any Canadian has spent in space. Now, I'm not as clear about the sequence of flights after he gets there, in that I know that the Expedition 58 crew that he's a part of is supposed to be arriving at the space station on the December 3rd, 4th time frame, if the, uh, the current schedule holds. Then they have to bring home the Expedition 56 crew, and that'll be in late December, if I remember that correctly. But I'm not exactly clear on when Expedition 59 or 60 are launching. Have you got some clarity on those uh, launch dates, Mark? Yeah, because so, I haven't heard yet. Yeah. So the current crew is scheduled to come back on December 20th now. And from what I understand, Expedition 5859 is, uh, based on what I saw on the NASA website, is scheduled to launch on April the 5th now. Uh, Okay, so he's going to be five months in space-ish before somebody else comes up. Well, April the 5th, so uh, three... Okay, four. More like four months. Four months, yeah. So they'll they'll be... And, of course, the other crew is there for three weeks. So, you know, three and a... So over three months, though... Uh, of just the three of them at this time on the space station. So uh, so that definitely will uh, change uh, the plan a bit because there were supposed to be uh, five of them. Um, and of course, Expedition 5960, uh, um, that one is was, according to the website, uh, NASA's website was launching in July. So uh, I and don't know... And by then they'll have come home, yeah. Uh, that's right. And they'll have come home by then. Yeah, by then, but David should be back on the ground. Exactly. Because he's supposed to be six and a half months. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a little bit of a, a flux right now. This is why I'm just kind of um, confused, because usually you just kind of know that every three months, and the crew is going to be going up. But as you can see just from this conversation, um, they've had to alter some of the flight schedules. We don't even know. Do we know yet if uh, that crew that had the abort is going to be on one of those two missions, or are they still proceeding with the uh, the previous flight path? Have they said? 
Uh, well, as far as I know, Nick uh, Haig and the Russian cosmonaut uh, are not uh, back in the schedule. So um, cool. I don't know when uh, they would be going uh, back up. I, I haven't heard anything. Now, because with initially the promise was the spring. Right. But, uh, we do be a little bit later. So. If that's the, if if he does go if they do go up in the spring, then that would certainly um, uh, put the um, uh, the planning, I suppose, back on track. Um, now, as far as uh, David's mission is concerned, um, because of the way things have worked out, he may not be able to do a spacewalk, which would be tremendously uh, disappointing to him. But um, uh, you know, one of the primary reasons for him going up there uh, is the science mission. And are his science experiments still going to go as planned, or will they have to scale back on some of those? And that's one of the things I'm going to be asking when I go down to uh, to Kazakhstan in a couple of weeks, because we'll have a suite of Canadian officials on site, and I haven't heard yet. I haven't heard officially what the uh, what they're going to be cutting back. Okay. I just know from talking with David about two weeks ago that something will be cut back. Right, but uh, I don't know which experiments those will be because they have what two hundred during a particular mission at any one time. He may not not have known himself at that moment. <laughs> yeah, they actually do a tremendous yeah. amount of uh, not just obviously they have to spend a certain amount of time station keeping, uh, but uh, you know uh, they spend at least fifty percent of the time doing science, um, and um, on our sister website, SpaceRef. Uh, we post the daily uh, space station status report, um, along with videos and whatever else. We put some. We put together a feature every day, and it it you know it talks about what they're doing and it lists all the experiments and it's just incredible how much work uh, is actually uh, research is is being done. Now, um, the good news is is that you're going to continue your coverage of David's mission because you are actually going to Kazakhstan uh, to cover this. You went in June for the June launch uh, in which David was the backup. You're going to be reporting for Space Q um, for the Canadian audience, and you're also going to be reporting for others, I believe, in the U.S. Uh, Exactly. So, uh, you know... Give our listeners a sense of what it's like to go to Kazakhstan to see a launch, and then tell us what the sequence of events is, and then we'll get into some of the rituals. Okay, that sounds like a... It is an adventure, you know, when, when you describe it that way, and it really does have a long history behind it. So there's a few ways that one can get to Kazakhstan. If you're a media person, then what you do is you coordinate with your local space agency, so to speak. So the Europeans will coordinate with ESA, the Americans will coordinate with NASA, and I coordinate with the CSA. And then uh, the CSA has to go to whatever partner is sort of in charge of um, the organizing at that time, which depends on what the crew composition is. So in June, we had a European going up, Alexander Gerst. And in that case, the Europeans were sort of in charge of ferrying the media around from place to place. They arranged the charter flight from Moscow. They arranged the buses. They arranged the hotel, all of that stuff. This time it's going to be NASA because we have a NASA astronaut and McLean is going to be going up. So we're staying in a different hotel in Moscow, but then it's going to be pretty much the same sequence of events, but just with different people in charge. So we'll be flown to Kazakhstan on a charter and then bust around and otherwise taken care of. 
If you are going um, outside of the media sphere, there are a few ways you can get to Kazakhstan. The uh, easiest way is through a space uh, tour company. I think Space Adventures actually has uh, packages where people can put down a few thousand and they basically do the same service for you. Or if you're feeling really adventurous, there are other ways of getting there too, by flight or by train. But in that case, you have to deal with local customs and uh, having to deal with the local language as well. If you're not fluent in Russian or in Kazakh, it's a little bit difficult to, uh, to move around in there. So that's why I would recommend that you probably would go with a, um, a tour company that just knows what they're doing and can do all of the, uh, the negotiations for you. So that's the technical side just for arriving. But once you actually get there, putting all of the, uh, the flights and the, uh, the logistics aside, they have about two days of rituals before the launch that media attend. And for the astronauts, these rituals actually extend even further beyond two days. They do stuff for weeks and weeks when they, uh, they arrive in Moscow for the last bit of their training. They go and they visit Yuri Gagarin's grave, for example, which is on the, uh, in the Kremlin. You can go see that, too, if you're in Moscow and are there during opening hours, just sitting on the wall. So they go and they lay flowers at the grave. And uh, they, but what we see is, uh, as media is the part where the rocket actually comes out of the, uh, the hangar. They have uh, basically their own equivalent of the vehicle assembly building where they're putting together the rocket and the spacecraft and all the components. And then the way that they ferry things around in uh, Kazakhstan is by track. They actually have a railway track that uh, ships to the various components from spot to spot. Because if you picture Kazakhstan, it's kind of like standing in the middle of Saskatchewan. It's very flat, and uh, there isn't really a lot to see except the flatness. And then uh, this whole complex used to be a top-secret complex. Of course, it was built during the Soviet era, so it's rather isolated. Um, There are a lot of launch sites and launch buildings that are very far apart, and really uh, local roads or railroads are the best way of getting around in there. And uh, that's how they get the rocket around, just from railroad stop to railroad stop. So they bring it out of this uh, this hangar. I hear that in the winter time, which is when we're going to be there, that it kind of creaks and makes these amazing noises as it's getting out into the cold. It it parades by the uh, the journalists. Some of the people who are involved with building on the rocket actually ride on it for a short time, and then um, it goes off to a railway crossing. And uh, the railway crossing is quite some distance away. It takes a couple of hours to get there. And that gives time for all the media and the uh, other attendees to scramble to buses and just uh, bus out there. And then what happens is when they arrive at the railway crossing, traditionally that's when the backup crew arrives. So there is a a tradition in Russia where they're a little superstitious and worried about what would happen if a prime crew was to uh, watch their own rocket arriving at the, uh, the launch pad. So only the backup crew shows up. So they'll be there, and if we're lucky, we might get a few uh, interview opportunities with them. And then our last stop on the rollout day is at the launch pad itself. So the rocket, when it's going along, it's horizontal. It's not like the um, the Kennedy Space Center traditional way of doing things, where the rocket's always vertical as it's traveling. In this case, the rocket is horizontal, and they have to hoist it onto the vertical to uh, get it onto the pad and into the proper configuration. So we actually see the hoisting over at the pad, and then uh, the next day when we come back, there's a traditional blessing of the rocket by an Orthodox priest. And he arrives in the full regalia. He uh, speaks in Russian, and uh, he gives a prayer, and he splashes uh, the nearby officials with uh, water, and he may do the same with the press as well. In June, it was very pleasant, but in December, I think it's going to be a bit cold because <laughs> it'll be minus 40. So it'll be more like ice shower rather than a water shower, but uh, we'll see how that goes. And then uh, the crew themselves, obviously, the prime crew, they're in quarantine. 
And uh, they will be doing one last press conference with us on the same day as the blessing. So it's one day before launch. They will be behind glass that we none of our nasty germs can get to them or vice versa, I suppose. So press conference is mostly in Russian with a little bit of English here and there. And for the French journalists, they actually have to speak in English because they have interpreters on site who translate between the two languages to make sure the audience understands. But of course, they don't know French or uh, any of the European languages. So when we were there in June, there was a German astronaut going up, and the Germans had to be very careful to say their, their questions in English. So that way they could be interpreted for other people to understand. It's a very small room, and a lot of journalists crowd in there. It felt like there were about 200 of us in a spot where maybe there was 115 seats. So there were a lot of people around the edges and trying to get their camera views in. You're trying to shoot through glass, which is a bit difficult, but uh, it just kind of added to the fun. And are the families there? lunch day. Uh, no, they're not there at that point, but uh, they show up later on. Ah, okay. So on the launch day, yeah, when you get to the actual launch time, after you see the, the crew bust out and uh, brought into their suiting area, and then they're suited up in front of the media, behind glass still, and then they walk out, they talk to the Russian commission, and they get on buses. Then everybody, including uh, the families, goes out to the launch site. So uh, we have the families that are sitting in the VIP stands, and the VIP stands are just kind of to the left of where the public stands are, so you can see them. Um, unless they go to another area. So when I was there last time, for example, we were very, very fortunate because David was there. He gave interviews uh, right on site while we were waiting for the rocket to launch. And then uh, he went over to the VIP stands and he and the Canadian Space Agency negotiated and they decided actually to bring him over to talk to the journalists during the launch. So he could have sat in the VIP stands and just done his own thing over there, but he just saw this as a perfect opportunity, I suppose, to uh, do some public relations. And so uh, there were four Canadian journalists there in June, and two of us managed to get away from uh, the stands and stand beside him and uh, watch the thing go. And uh, I have to say, watching a rocket go with a guy who's about to climb on that rocket at six months is a unique experience. Because <laughs> he certainly knows the, uh, the rules of the road, so to speak. He was able to tell us what was going on at various stages. And, um, and I should also mention that compared to Kennedy, it's closer. It's about a kilometer away as opposed to almost four, four or five. So, yeah, I remember the, the first time I, I saw a shuttle launch, uh, I was just, and that was at the press site, I was just awed by the, the sound, the everything. Um, how does that compare, uh, I mean, you're closer at the Russian one, how does that compare to a shuttle launch in terms of the sound? And, it hits you, you sure yeah. feel it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's noisy, but um, it seemed to go up faster in my mind. No. Bear in mind, it's been quite a while since I've seen a shuttle launch. It was 2010. So uh, maybe it just because it was further away or maybe it's because it was a different vehicle. But for me, it felt like that rocket was off the ground very, very quickly. And uh, the sound didn't take as long to reach me, too. That was another thing I noticed. Because with shuttle, you're something like four kilometers away, and you see the thing lift off for several seconds before the sound hits you. Here, I didn't feel that. Basically, the sound and the lift off were almost simultaneous because it was only a kilometer away. And as I said, it seemed to go up a lot quicker. And nine minutes later, after it takes off, they'll be in orbit. Well, if everything goes well. If everything goes well. <laughs> True. Everything went well. And so uh, it was amazing because um, everything went like clockwork. I'm so used to shuttle launches where something with the weather would, you know, hold things up at the last minute. And uh, actually, before I got on the podcast, I was telling uh, Mark about STS-115. I tried to go down there, and long story short, a hurricane kicked up on the coast, and that really delayed things. That's what I'm used to. But no, to get to Russia and to have everything go hour by hour, minute by minute, and have this thing precisely lift off on time, I'm still in awe. And um, I must say, too, that most of the European press corps that was with me was also in shock, just at how efficient it was. 
this is not something that NASA had during shuttle years. So uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so, um, so uh, okay, so to wrap up, um, your coverage uh, is basically uh, um, about three days ahead of time you'll begin your coverage. Um, what about uh, after the launch? What, what happens then for, for the journalists? Uh, is everybody just then? Well, yeah. It depends. It depends on what's going on. So there are two ways that, simply speaking, that the Soyuz can get to the International Space Station. The first way takes six hours. The second way takes two days. It has to do with orbits and the way the station is positioned and what they feel like doing at that particular moment. In June, it actually took two days. So the following day after the launch, we climbed onto uh, our plane. We got back into Moscow. We're bused back to our hotel, which took a day, the whole process. And then we went over to the Moscow Mission Control two days after launch, which is called TSUP. And uh, we saw the docking from there. And uh, the families were also present. They were sitting in the VIP area, which, again, it was a big balcony that was above their mission controllers. And the, uh, the VIPs were on the left and the journalists were on the right. So they were right, right there, only about 10 or 15 feet from us, speaking to their, uh, their loved ones in German, Russian and English. So uh, quite the moment there. In this case, if it's two days, if something changes, we will have that same procedure again. I won't be going myself because I have a schedule conflict. I have to be in Washington uh, just about the time that would be happening. So I'll just be flying directly home. But if it goes to schedule, um, this particular time, we're only going to have a six-hour turnaround. So to put it in perspective of the people standing on the ground in Kazakhstan, um, it's going to be lifting off at 5.30 in the afternoon. So then we're going to climb back onto our bus shortly after the launch. We'll be very glad to do so. I think it's going to be very cold. <laughs> and then <laughs> we will bus back to a hotel. It won't be our own hotel, but another one. And in this hotel will be a screen that is showing the, uh, the docking. So we'll be able to watch it live. And apparently in the same room will be uh, David's wife, who uh, will be uh, attending with her children. The children will be in the room at the time because this is going to be probably about midnight or 1.30. So they're, they're pretty young. I think they'll be in bed at that point. But she'll be there. And uh, she'll be talking with her, astro uh, her astronaut in space. And I think also the president of the Canadian Space Agency may be in attendance. It won't really be a situation where we're doing interviews. You know, they'll more be talking to David and then kind of moving on with uh, the rest of the procedures. We'll be able to witness that and be able to, uh, to see what's going on. Okay. Well, that sounds exciting. Um, I remember when we first met, um, you know, one of your goals was to see a Canadian uh, launch uh, from Kazakhstan. Uh, now you're going to, and that was like, oh, I don't know, that was 2011 or something like that. So that's seven years ago. You're yeah, gonna... I think even before that, the first article I did for you was 2009, 2008 uh, or 2009. So it's a 10-year journey. And you're going to it see that. A while. Now, of course, I I remember at the yeah. time I said yes, I want to be there too. That's not going to happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember you saying that actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we'll, we'll just have to save that for for another launch. Uh, although uh, I suppose we should wrap this up by saying that this could be the last Canadian to launch from Kazakhstan because Very starting well starting yeah. next year. Um, if everything goes well, the U.S. will resume launching and they will not have just not one launcher, but they will have two launch options through SpaceX uh, and um, uh, through um, Boeing and um, Boeing slash uh, ULA, I suppose. Uh, and so... Um, you know, after that, uh, future Canadian astronauts uh, are likely to be flying with uh, Americans. So, yeah, so your experience, um, uh, 
you know, uh, this is a unique experience in that it could be the last time a Canadian actually does launch from Russia. It, it could be the last time, and for that reason, I'm hoping that there are going to be seven journalists that are out there from Canada, so I'm really hoping that we're going to be able to document it thoroughly because it's a special moment in uh, Canadian history. We've only had, if I'm remembering correctly, is it three astronauts that launched from Kazakhstan? That would be Thuris, Cadfield, and now uh, David? I believe so. Do I remember this correctly? Yeah, I believe that's right. I hope I got that right. Anyway, only a handful of them. Let's just put it that way. Only a few people have ever done that. And it's a window that closed pretty rapidly because if we're going back to Thursk's flight, that's 10 years ago, almost exactly. So uh, 2009 to 2018. And then it's going to be going back to Florida where we've been launching our Canadian astronauts since 1984. That's so right. um, it'll be easier to get down there. You know, if you're planning to go to a Canadian astronaut launch and you, you want to go with the next one, don't worry. You won't have to go through all this this, uh, these procedures that I have to do, it'll just be take one flight down to Florida and you're there. You know? Yeah, but it's all part of the experience. But on the other hand, you, you kind of miss something because yeah. um, the Russians have been launching people since the dawn of the space age. Of, well, they were the ones who started the space age, essentially. And um, they have all these procedures and rituals and, and facilities that have been sitting there since the 1960s or the 1950s, depending on what you're talking about. And that just gives an extra layer of magic on top of the whole thing, which... Uh, I didn't find the same way in Florida, although Florida had its own kind of magic. You know, there it was kind of like so many people have gone through the support. It's almost like a, almost like a, I guess, first stop space, you know? Well, the, the, <laughs> so many people have done it. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you have to look at it yeah. this way, that this is progress and that uh, hopefully there'll be some new rituals uh, in Florida now that uh, um, we have two new uh, spacecraft that are going to, uh, to take astronauts yeah, and to space. Yeah, I hope that people don't take it for granted because the shuttle went on for so long that uh, for long periods of time, people weren't really paying attention to the program. So I'm hoping now that with uh, the resurgence of uh, the commercial crew, with uh, flights coming back into Florida, that uh, the American space program and the launches will get the gets the attention that they got back in the early 80s, which kind of faded through the 90s and 2000s. So fingers crossed. Okay. I think we've covered everything that we needed to cover to get people up to speed on David's mission, uh, what happened at the Canadian uh, Aerospace Summit. So, uh, Elizabeth, thank you for being on the show. We're uh, all looking forward to your coverage of David's mission. Thank you. And, uh, we should we'll... mention the launch time, huh? So people know when to tune in. Sure. It's yeah. a uh, so, um, his launch, I'm going to do it in Eastern time, so you'll have to convert to your local time zone. It's going to be around uh, 6.30 in the morning on December the 3rd in Eastern time. And where I'm going to be, it's going to be 5.30 in the afternoon. So uh, watch it. It's on NASA television, and if we're lucky, we might even get something from CBC. I know that at least a few CBC journalists will be on site, so who knows? Maybe they're going to have something live. And they'll definitely, definitely be able to watch it on Space Q. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Elizabeth. Uh, we'll get you on the show again in, in the near future. Sounds great. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, 
please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.